So I'll turn in my Bible to Matthew 28, and we'll read verse 19 through 20. Listen now to the word of God. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's holy and inspired word. It contains all that we need for faith and for life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask for your blessing of this preaching from this passage of your holy word. And we pray that the audience of Pine Haven Presbyterian Church will receive this not as the words of men, but as it is really the word of God. We ask this all in the precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Have you ever wondered about the doctrine of the Trinity? Have you ever wondered why we subscribe to the doctrine of the Trinity? As you are probably aware, there is nothing anywhere that explicitly states the doctrine of the Trinity. It was a doctrine which was coined by the early church father Tertullian to explain a common biblical thread that there is one God in three persons. It is foundational to the Christian's belief. It is found in the early confessions, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedonian Creed, and all the Reformed Creeds. But if you are like me, you have seldom, if ever, heard a sermon on the doctrine of the Trinity. So I'd suggest that we do so now. B.B. Warfield, the so-called Lion of Princeton, said this referring to the doctrine of the Trinity. The simplicity and assurance with which the New Testament writers speak of God as a Trinity betray no sense of novelty in so speaking of him. This undoubtedly is, this undoubtedly in part is because it was no longer a novelty so to speak of him. It is clear, in other words, that as we read the New Testament, we are not witnessing the birth of a new conception of God. What we meet within its pages is a firmly established conception of God underlying and giving its tone to the whole fabric. It is not in a text here and there that the New Testament bears its testimony to the doctrine of the Trinity. The whole book is Trinitarian to the core. All its teaching is built on the assumption of the Trinity, and its allusions to the Trinity are frequent, cursory, easy, and confident. So as Warfield speaks that the whole New Testament is Trinitarian at its very core, I believe that if we survey the data, we would find this to be true also. Before we do that, let us 
state the doctrine of this passage in Matthew. God is revealed as one, yet in three individual persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that those three are equal in power and glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks in question and answer five and six of the Trinity. Question five, are there more gods than one? Answer, there is but one only, the living and the true God. Question six, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. I think this will be made evident in time with the exposition of the text. I would like to exposit these in three headings. Point one, one name. Point two, three persons. And point three, equal in power and glory. And then I will make a, a few applications. The scriptures, the scripture says clearly that God is one. For example, and we could list abundant others, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And a New Testament passage to solidify that God is one is 1 Corinthians 8.6. Yet for us, there is one God, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. There is no doubt that God is one. And in this passage, it is revealed when it speaks of one name. And that is the first heading, one name. This is the Great Commission. In, in this commission, speaking of this passage, this is the Great Commission. In this commission, Jesus says that you need to have been baptized and this is your first of lifelong obedience. Baptism is a sign and seal of our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. In other words, this is the first step of a lifelong of obedience to Christ. Further, Jesus gives you, among others, a fundamental doctrine to live by and that God is one. Verse 17 says, excuse me, verse 19 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. This name is singular, not plural. It is one name. This is the one name of God that we are baptized into. However, we could ask, what does a name represent? Let's turn in your Bibles to Exodus 3 to answer that question. In Exodus 3... Verse 13, Moses speaks to God. 
God says to the prophet of Israel, go and rescue my people out of the bondage of the Egyptian, of the Egyptians. And Moses then asks, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses asks God to supply his name. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the name of God, the name that God gives Moses, I am or Jehovah or Yahweh. Warfield says, for the Hebrew did not think of the name as we are accustomed to, as a mere external symbol, but rather as the adequate expression of the innermost being of its bearer. In his name, the being of God finds expression. You see, the, the being of God or essence or substance is captured in this one name, but Warfield continues. When therefore our Lord commanded his disciples to baptize those whom they brought to his obedience into the name, he was using language charged with them with high meaning. This is a direct ascription of Jehovah, the God of Israel. Do you see the point? When God was commissioning that the disciples would baptize in the one name of God, that name was Jehovah or Yahweh, or if you prefer, I am. But furthermore, that Yahweh, the name of God, is established in three persons. We, we need to give attention to these three persons. And that is the second heading. This is, this is captured in the phrase of the text, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The one name is declared to be the common possession of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We consecrate whomever we are baptizing in the one name equally shared of the Father and the one name of the Son and the one name of the Holy Spirit. Would anyone deny that these are three individual and distinct persons? The Father is not the same as the Son, nor the Spirit. The Son is not the same as the Father nor the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. They are clearly distinct individual persons. To reveal this, let us turn uh, to John fourteen sixteen. John 14, 16, and it is important to note that this is the Son, Jesus Christ, who is speaking to the Father. And I will ask the Father, 
and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. It is revealed in no uncertain terms that in verse 26, that the helper is the Holy Spirit. The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, asks the Father to send the disciples another helper who will be with them forever. The Son asks, the Father sends, the Spirit proceeds. There are three distinct individual persons in the one name of God, co-eternal and consubstantially divine. And a, and a, an illustration may suffice at this point. And I enter this with great trepidation for many heresies have come from the use of illustrations. That being said, I am a human. That is what constitutes my nature or essence or substance. And you all are too. But I am different as to my personhood. A human is what my nature is, but I am a different I am different as a person. I have particular DNA, I have certain features that make me unique and certain characteristics that make me distinct. Every person is unique in that sense. Obviously the trinitarian the trinity is different from human nature and that the persons are uh, our trinity from eternity, but that is an analogy of which, of the, excuse me, but that is an analogy to the way the trinity works. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are of the same nature or essence or substance. They are all God, but each person is different. This is the way they, this is why they are given separate names. That is, they are not different in ontology, but different, but different, differentiated according to economy. As the Westminster Confession states, the Father is none, is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. This is the way the Orthodox have understood it ever since the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. Furthermore, there are three equal persons in power and glory. So that's the third heading, equal in power and glory. The persons each share equal power and glory in the divinity and in baptism. Let's take equal in divinity first. Each person shares equally in the divine name. Thus, they possess equally the power and glory of the one name. In verse, uh, in verse 19, the one name is said to be in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Father equally shares in the one divine name. The Son equally shares the one divine name. The Spirit equally shares the one divine name. These three persons equally hold the one name in their personhood. These three persons share equally 
the divine glory in the divine name, not as if a third is distinguished for the Father and a third for the Son and a third for the Spirit. This is not, uh, this is not the di divine glory I mean by equality, but they share the whole glory as the divine person. In one name, each person shares the fully divine nature of the individual persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They all share equally the whole of the divine nature. Thereby, each person possesses the name of God. The second subheading is equal in baptism. Furthermore, you can see that there is no competition in baptism to declare the one person equal and not the others. Equal, equal glory goes to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit in baptism. The Father's glory is not shared with the Son, nor the Spirit's, nor the Spirit. The Father's glory is not shared with the Son, nor the Spirit. In a, in a person's baptism. One is not said to be lesser in baptism than the other. The Father's glory does not encroach upon the Son's glory, and the Son's glory does not encroach upon the Spirit's glory. All have equal glory in baptism. This initiation into Christianity starts with baptism in the one name and three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John Owen spoke this in his work on the Holy Spirit. He says, In our initiation into the profession and practice of worship of God, according to the gospel of God, we are, we are in our baptism engaged to it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the foundation of our doing all things that Christ commands us. Unto this service we are solemnly dedicated, namely of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as they each of them are equally participants of the same divine nature. That pretty much sums it up. But you may be asking, how does this apply to me? One could ask, so what? What difference does this make for my life? If all doctrine leads to godliness and piety, this notion of the Trinity should lead us to godliness as well. So that leads us to our application. First of all, let me exhort you. I exhort you to honor and adore each member of the Godhead in unity and individuality, one God and three persons, because only the true God is worthy of worship. The Father is God. Let me remind you again of, of 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist and from whom we exist. This text expressly reveals that the Father is God. Therefore, you must, in obedience, worship the Father. 
The Son is God as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is a synonym of the Son. It is also spoken in Thomas's confession. The confession of Jesus held in John 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. It cannot be said any more clearly that the word, the Son, is true God. You must, if you are obedient, worship the word or the Son as true divinity. The Spirit is also God. The Spirit of God is revealed as divine as well. In Acts chapter 5, you have Ananias accursed by Peter because he was lying to the Holy Spirit. And Peter also says, you have not lied to man, but to God. And further, Peter says, you have agreed together to text, excuse me, to test the Spirit of the Lord. It is clear that one God is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Spirit is God. Remember that you have an obligation to worship and adore God, to worship Jehovah in these triune persons, because these are equally and fully God. Remember the words of Psalm 149, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. You have been commanded to praise the Lord in his triune persons. You would be disobedient if you do not do it. So praise Jehovah, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I, uh, I give you warnings that you do not over-speculate. Augustine once commented about the Trinity, then in no other subject is error more dangerous. Don't be overly speculative, speculative because there is nothing more dangerous to your spiritual life than speculating about the Trinity. Just remember these seven statements and don't move beyond them. There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son nor the Spirit. The Son is not the Father nor the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. Let me, re let me repeat that. There is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son nor the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, nor the Son. This is a mysterious doctrine, and it is incomprehensible, but it is biblical. This doctrine is truly revealed in God's Word, so you can believe it. But let me warn you not to over-speculate. However, let me warn you, don't under-speculate either. Augustine said further that in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or 
the discovery of truth more profitable. Don't go past these seven statements that I just made, but by all means, explore fully those seven statements. Explore every facet of the mysteries of the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are many books to read on this subject that will elucidate the one God in three persons. So by all means, don't underspeculate either. But let, let me give you a warning to the unbeliever. If you are not a Christian, you can not be assured of God's love only if you know only if you know if you bow to the knees of the son Jesus and in repentance and faith promise to serve him and him only for in this way you honor the father by the spirit by the declaration that you will you will serve the son and him only for he who honors the son has the father but I speak a word of consolation to all of you. Remember that if you are Christian, God the Father has loved you from eternity past. He says in Ephesians 1.4, he chose you from the foundation of the world with such a love that he sent his only begotten son to take on flesh and pursue righteousness and die for you that you would have everlasting life. You can be convinced that God the Father has loved you and will continue to love you unto eternity. Further, the Son willingly agreed to take on flesh and to consecrate you in his one act of redemption and by his death to forgive all of your trespasses. If you are sincerely a Christian, you can be convinced that the Son has loved you and died for you as a substitution in your place. He has loved you and will continue to love you unto eternity. Furthermore, you can be convinced of the Spirit's love for you. He applied Jesus's death to you so that you might be willing and able to receive all the benefits of the covenant of grace. Jesus died, but what does that mean to you unless you have the Spirit breathe into you new life and place a heart of flesh in you rather than a heart of stone. He willingly agreed to perform this in the eternal covenant of grace out of love for you. He willingly applied to you all the work of redemption and you can be fully assured of that he has loved you and willingly will continue to love you into eternity. That is the God we worship. That is the God we adore. The one God in three persons. That is the God of the Christian. To conclude, I want to leave you with this verse that, that has all the three persons of the Godhead and these three persons three persons willingly 
and voluntarily do all things for your salvation. This is Galatians 4, 4 through 7, and then we will conclude. But when the, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem, to redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you will help us to worship you, one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because each person is one in divinity. And we ask that we will not over-speculate, but that we will not under-speculate either, and that we might be assured of the Father's love for us, and the Son's love for us, and the Spirit's love for us, and that we will take the love to the nations, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that whosoever believes knows the triune love. It's in the name of the Son that we pray. Amen.